0: My name is Dave, and I work in the Horn of Africa. Uh, As a result, I tend to see a lot of malnutrition, so that's kind of where all this is coming from. But before I went to the Horn, I knew nothing about malnutrition. So I was curious, how many people here uh, regularly treat children with malnutrition? Uh, Quite a few, but certainly not the majority of you. So this is mostly geared towards people who have never treated malnutrition, but hopefully will have um, maybe some updates or uh, experiences from what I do in the Horn of Africa. So, This is a statistic from the WHO that came out years ago, a decade ago, and a recent statistic is exactly the same that 99% of all deaths, all pediatric deaths that occur, occur in the developing world. Only 1% of all deaths occur in Europe, North America, Australia, places like that. 99 out of 100 occur in the developing world. So this is a big problem. And there are lots of reasons for that. Uh, We're not going to talk about all the reasons. But here's a a map showing you kind of the distribution of childhood mortality. And you can see that India is a huge... uh, uh, problem with childhood mortality, and then Sub-Saharan Africa is really the the second worst place. North America, you almost can't find the red dots. In fact, I tell my students, I teach at a medical school, I tell my students, children in America don't die. (laughs) That's what I tell them. Of course, that's hyperbole, but that's to get the point across that really in comparison to where I'm working now, children die all the time, and it's like children don't die in America because it's so few. So people, of course, do research on what causes these children to die. What are the the, um, causes of death? And this is a more recent pie graph, but it really hasn't changed much again from 10 years ago. The top killers are still neonatal problems. So whether that's preterm or birth asphyxia or infections related to birth. Or diarrhea and pneumonia being by far the biggest killers. Still, this was the same 10 years ago. This is a newer statistic. It's the same. You can see other infections. You can see malaria in here somewhere. There's malaria. HIV AIDS is only 2%. I mean, it's a problem for sure. But compared to all the deaths, it's not nearly as big of a problem as something like malnutrition. So I gave you here a conservative statistic Uh, you can read lots of things that say up to 50% or more of all pediatric deaths are attributable in some way to malnutrition. More recently, I saw this statistic was one-third. So one-third to one-half of all the deaths are related to malnutrition. It doesn't mean they die from malnutrition. I just showed you what they die from. They die from uh, diarrhea and pneumonia and other things like that. But 50% or here one-third... Uh, is attributable to malnutrition. So, one of the reasons why 99 out of 100 deaths occur in the developing world is because that's where the malnourished children live. We don't really have very many malnourished children here in America. So, that's a big problem. I, I think it's probably the major problem as far as childhood mortality. So, what we're going to do here is try and do quickly, we don't have much time and there's a lot to try and cover, is to understand different forms or types of malnutrition. To understand the biochemical or metabolic changes that occur, and that's important because the treatments that work target those metabolic derangements, not just giving kids food. I mean, that's part of it, but really targeting those metabolic derangements. Understanding what current diagnostic criteria is. Those of you who have been doing malnutrition treatment, you probably already know that those criteria have changed in the last, um, I don't know, six years or so. They've come up with some different criteria and then to to understand how, what is the, the best way that we know of now, it's always changing, to treat these children and help them recover and get better and survive. So malnutrition is kind of a broad topic. And malnutrition doesn't just mean starving children in Africa. Malnutrition means overnutrition. That's America's malnutrition problem. Sorry if I'm kind of in your all's way. Uh, we're not going to talk about overnutrition in this lecture, okay? That's a topic for somebody else. Undernutrition is what we'll talk about, and that can either be in a form that's considered moderate or severe. And by far, the moderate malnutrition is the... Has, has, there's many more children who are moderately malnourished than severe, and you could have a whole lecture or a series of lectures on moderate malnutrition, how to prevent that, how to treat that. We're not really going to talk about that either. I wanted to mention it because... Really, if you want to cure the malnutrition problem, you have to start with moderate malnutrition. And you have to prevent severe malnutrition from occurring. That's when the children die. So you could have a whole another lecture on that. So I'm sorry, but we won't have time to get into that today. Stunting is another form of malnutrition that really refers to height for age. And that... That typically goes along with chronic malnutrition. So children who have been malnourished over a long period of time begin to have a slow or ceasing of their linear growth. That's stunting. And again, we're not going to talk a lot about that either. That's chronic malnutrition. Wasting is a sign of more acute malnutrition, and that's where we're going to focus most of our time today. And that's a weight for height um, uh, measurement. And then there's the so-called protein energy malnutrition, which I'm going to, to mention and then suggest that we perhaps not use that term very often anymore. But this is the term that I learned when I was in medical school, and it's a term that you still find often in the literature. So we'll talk about the different forms of that and why maybe we ought to use a different language when talking about that kind of malnutrition. So protein energy malnutrition is severe malnutrition, that results in wasting plus or minus edema. That's kind of a really broad, general definition for you. Marasmus is the one, the one where the, the kids look really, really thin. They're really wasted. You see their bones. And when sometimes we say they have an old man's face or a wizened appearance. This guy looks like he could be 65. You know? If you just saw his face, it's like he knows something. You know? And it's, it has to do with the cheek's loss of some of the fat there, the wasting in the face, you can see more of his facial bones like he's an older man. But you can easily see the wasting here in the axilla where his skin looks wrinkly, and that's a a sign of wasting. You can see his bones here clearly. Um, So Marasmus is what we consider a normal response to deprivation of nutrients. It's normal, meaning first they lose their fat. They, They use up their fat stores first. And then they start using their muscle as a last resort. So these guys have a normal response to deprivation. Whereas children with kwashiorkor, the ones who who have edema, the ones that you see on TV with the big bellies, you know, they like to show those ones because it's uh, striking. They have a maladaptive response. So they are also deprived of nutrients, whether that's food or vitamins or minerals, usually a combination of all of those. But instead of wasting their fat first and then going to their muscle, they retain some fat and start wasting their muscle before it's time to do that. And as a result, they also get derangements in the proteins that are made by the liver, and they start retaining fluid. And so the hallmark really is edema. So at very minimum, to diagnose someone with kwashiorkor, they should have a reduced weight for height, and they should have edema. Now, there are lots of other findings here. Uh, You can see that they retain subcutaneous uh, fat, and they have skin and hair changes. So on this child, you can see the edema by looking at the shininess on his skin. And this is something that I teach my students as well. If you see shiny skin in in a child, it usually means that skin has been stretched because there's edema there. So we look for shiny skin, and if you put your thumb in there, it would pit. They also have skin changes, which you can see a little bit here this is desquamation, so they get these kind of coin lesions, where it looks like pieces of their skin have been ripped off. Desquamation. And then on this picture, you can see a little bit better some of the more characteristic skin changes, which is, we call this flaky paint rash. It almost looks like you could rub the skin right off of the child's limbs. Unfortunately, this child didn't make it. Um, but he, he had all the characteristic skin findings. So in order for us to understand malnutrition and to understand how to treat it, we have to think of it as more than just protein energy malnutrition. And that's why I said I suggest that we not use that term as frequently as perhaps in the past because that term makes, it, makes us think that they've not eaten enough protein or enough carbohydrate, and that's the problem. And what we're finding in malnutrition, it's not so much. I mean, of course, it has to do with not having protein and not having carbohydrate, not having enough food. That's certainly part of the problem. But what we're finding out is that a big part of the problem is they may have food, but they don't have the right kind of food. So they're missing certain nutrients, certain minerals, certain vitamins that are essential to growth. And so understanding it's not just the quantity of food that they're taking, but it's the quality of food. And so early on in malnutrition treatment history, people gave these children lots of of protein and lots of carbohydrate, and they still died. And people couldn't figure out why they died. And that's because that's not really the answer. The answer is to give the right amount at the right time and to make sure we're giving the right quality. So we'll talk a little bit more about that. There are um, multiple nutrients that are essential for everyone to live. And we can divide these nutrients into type 1 or type 2 nutrients, meaning either the body will continue to grow without them or the body will stop growing without them. So type 1 nutrients, you can see a list here, the body will continue to grow, okay? meaning linear, linearly, will keep making muscle. The, the child will not look overtly malnourished. They will continue to grow until they use up their nutrient stores. And then they start to have signs and symptoms of these nutrient deficiencies. Okay? These are what we can call micronutrient deficiencies, Nutri- nutrients that we only need in small amounts, so you get iron deficiency, anemia, and pellagra and scurvy, and signs of vitamin A deficiency, and beriberi. You, you have a clinical syndrome when these, uh, when these nutrients are gone. But the child will continue to grow until it's depleted so much that you have a new clinical symptom that you can diagnose and treat. Type 2 nutrients, which you see on this side, are nutrients that if they are not present in the appropriate amount, the child will stop growing. And so what we're finding is, A lot of the children who are malnourished and have stopped growing have a deficiency in many of these type 2 nutrients. And so you'll see when we talk about the treatment of malnutrition that these are critical to getting the child to grow and to grow rapidly. If we don't add these back, the children either don't grow or their progression is very slow. So this is something that needs to be added to the treatment of our malnourished children. And you'll see that when we talk about the steps. You'll see zinc magnesium, potassium, you'll see these come back into play. Now, this is a picture that we all know, but when I teach my students in Africa, they have no idea what this thing is. And so I have to tell them that uh, malnutrition is like a bear in hibernation, but then I have to explain what a bear is, and it's a lot of hand movements, and so you all know what a bear is, and you all know what a bear does in winter. So the bear eats and stores up and then he goes into his cave, his den and he sleeps for months. And he doesn't eat, right? What would happen if we didn't eat for months? We would die. But a bear's system is able to close everything down. Temperature goes down, heart rate goes down, metabolism goes down, everything goes down. He doesn't move, he barely breathes, his heart rate slows down. This is actually what happens in malnourished children. This is how they adapt. So when you meet a malnourished children they will have what we call reductive adaptation. And this is something that the WHO has put out, a term that they use. Reductive adaptation. So their body has adapted to not having enough energy. And they do that by slowing down their heart rate. So often they have bradycardia. Often they're hypothermic. Often they're apathetic, meaning they don't look at you in the eye. You know how when you see a 12-month-old child, he's looking at everything. He just can't stop taking everything in. But not these children. They're usually looking up like this. They don't interact with you. You try to talk to them. They don't respond. They're in hibernation. It's just like the bear. There are also numerous metabolic derangements that occur in malnutrition. And I've listed several of them. We don't have time to go through each of them individually. But you'll see a lot of them have to do with electrolytes. Um, But there's also impaired absorption. And that means we can't just give them a bunch of food when they walk in the door. They're not ready. They're not able to absorb that, especially lactose. And most of the feedings that we give these children are milk based. And so we've learned over the years that we need to use a low lactose formula or even a lactose free formula if it's available in some places. Their cardiac function is reduced. Both the mass of the heart as well as the systolic function of the heart are reduced. So they're very susceptible to heart failure. And if you have a malnourished child with heart failure, there's a very high mortality with that. So we want to prevent heart failure, and that's why we have some of the recommendations on fluids that we'll talk about later. So these derangements are the reason for the recommendations that we're going to talk about. We're gonna have special formulas that have more potassium and less sodium to try and reverse that derangement. So how do we diagnose malnutrition? I try to teach my students, because if you read the literature or if you, if you pick up a WHO book, which they're the ones doing most of the uh, training on this, that there, there's a big focus on doing measurements. So you, you take a mid-upper arm circumference, you take a height, you take a weight, you, you compare them to each other, you compare them to age-appropriate values, and that's good and we need to do that. But really, the best way is to have a holistic approach where we're not only looking at anthropometric measurements, those height for weight and weight for age and height for age and mid-upper arm and BMI and all of those, but we're looking at the whole child. Most truly malnourished children will have a low weight for height or weight for age or height for age or mid-upper arm circumference, but they will also have signs of micronutrient deficiency, signs of anemia or nail or skin changes that are appropriate with certain micronutrient deficiencies or signs of rickets if you're in an area that has vitamin D deficiency. So typically you you find micronutrient deficiency signs as well as macronutrient deficiency, macronutrient meaning protein and energy. So you tend to see them together and often the child will have some kind of developmental delay or developmental regression, meaning they were doing something, they were running, and now they no longer run. They could climb stairs four months ago, but now they just can't do it anymore. Because sometimes you just get a small child, and you don't know. The child looks great, looks healthy, is playful, is doing wonderful, but when you do your weight for age, he's below where he should be. And you think, oh, no, he's malnourished. Maybe, but do a full exam, do a full history, and you should find some other signs to help corroborate your diagnosis. Okay, so the WHO came out with some... uh, They're not so new anymore, but they, they were new... For a long time, we used these uh, National Center for Health Statistics uh, values as a reference for what is normal growth in a child. And those statistics came from the U.S., and they were measurements done every couple of months, and then we kind of extrapolated from there, and we said the U.S. has good growth, healthy children, nobody dies there, so this should be the standard, and that's what we used. Well, the, the WHO and others got together and actually sampled... Groups from six different countries, and they picked breastfed mothers who were not smoking. So they tried to pick mothers who were having a more or less ideal situation, and from these different countries. So some of them are third world, some of them are second world, some of them are first world, and they combined the data and said, This is how children around the world should grow. So instead of having a reference comparing everyone to America, they combined these numbers together and said this is now a standard. This is how children should grow if they're fed properly in a healthy environment. And so we have a new set now of of reference values which is different from what they were using prior to 2006. And the WHO uses Z-scores. And when I got to Africa, I didn't know what a Z-score was. I didn't know. Everything I'm telling you now, I didn't know any of that. So I didn't know what a z-score was, and they kept talking about less than negative 2, less than negative 3, and I didn't understand what they were talking about. All that a z-score is is a standard deviation score. So one z-score is one standard deviation. Two score is two standard deviations from the mean. So you can see when we get out to three standard deviations under the mean, they're talking about a very small percentage of the population. That means that child almost for sure has a problem with his growth. That's why they've picked these numbers. That's where these numbers come from. So what the WHO tends to say is if it's two standard deviations from the mean, it's abnormal. And they may say moderately abnormal. And if it's more than three standard deviations, it becomes severely abnormal. And those are the children that we're really going to talk about. So negative two would be moderate malnutrition. And negative three would be severe malnutrition. So I told you we're not going to talk much about moderate. We're going to focus more on severe malnutrition. This is just for your reference for later. You can use these Z-scores, whether it's weight for age, height for age, weight for height, and you can come up with all kinds of terms for these malnourished children. We're not going to focus too much on that, but you can look at that later. So here is, you know, when, when people try to make recommendations for the world to follow, they try to make them very simple. And that's why I said... To do a good job, we should look at the whole child, but it's hard to teach everybody who's dealing with malnourished children to look at the whole child. So the WHO has made a, a, a really easy table, and they just want people to look for two things, wasting and edema. So there's different ways to look for wasting, and edema, obviously, you just put your finger in and see if it sticks. So you can find wasting based on a weight for height. So you take their weight, you take their height, and you find their Z-score. So if their Z-score is less than negative 3, standard deviations from the mean, that's considered severe wasting. You can look at the child if you don't have a scale. Is he wasting? Wasting starts in the axilla and the groin, then moves to the abdomen and buttocks, then to the chest and the back. And finally, they lose their fat in the buccal fat pad. And that's the most severe form of wasting. So you can look at the child But typically, we have something. We have a tape measure so we can do a mid-upper arm circumference. And there's the cutoff there. Or we have a scale and a tape measure to to measure height and weight. This is also a change from maybe 1999. I'm not sure exactly when that change was made. So some of you guys have been doing it for a while. That's a change. For me, it's always been less than 115 millimeters. It used to be less than 110. So that's a recent change. Um, So... That's how we diagnose. We're going to look at the whole child, but really when it comes down to it, if you're running a program, if you're in the community, if you're in a hospital, if you're trying to teach people how to catch these malnourished children, you're going to use weight for height or mid-upper arm circumference plus or minus edema. That's the simplest way to do it. And it's best to do all of those measurements because the uh, mid-upper arm circumference will catch about the same number of malnourished cases as weight for height but it will not catch the same cases. There's only 40% overlap. So it's better to do both and then grab all the children who have abnormal values. So what do we do once we find them? The first task is to decide, can they be treated in the community or do they have to be hospitalized? That's, the first, that's your first job when you see them. So they have malnutrition, what do we do with them? It used to be they all went in the hospital. That's the way we used to do it because we didn't have good food that we could give them at home. And we didn't have good programs to do things at home. But there's more and more information now and studies, cost-effectiveness studies, efficacy studies, showing that community-based approaches where the child does not go to the hospital are just as effective in the right child. So we have to decide who's the right child for community-based treatment. And really, this is what you're going to look at. What is the appetite of the child, and does the child have any medical comorbidities, any medical problems? Is the child sick? So if the child has a good appetite and no medical comorbidities, then he's a good candidate for outpatient treatment. Now, where I am, we don't have any outpatient treatment. We don't have a, we don't have a center. We don't have a, a place where these children can get their food, can get their ways, where people can identify problems and send them to the hospital. But if you have that, it's much more cost-effective to treat them in the community. People do it through daycares. People do it from home visits. People do it in lots of different ways. So you can be creative as long as the children are seen re- on a regular basis, have their weights done regularly, are monitored for illness regularly. Uh, it's very effective. If they have no appetite, if they are unable to eat because they're so, they're hibernating so deeply, or if they're sick whether that's diarrhea or that's pneumonia or meningitis or sepsis or something else. Then they really need to be in the hospital. And then once they're gaining weight well, once their medical conditions are better, if you have a community program, then you can move them to the community program. So one of the best ways that has been described in the literature as far as being tested and proven in lots of different environments is the so-called 10 steps of the WHO. Now, I don't work for the WHO, so I'm not telling you this because they're paying me to tell you this. I'm just telling you this because this is what I use, and this is what works. And so, for a reference, I'm just going to just throw up here some, some studies. You can look at them later if you want to. But lots of studies have been done to see if following these 10 rules actually affects the outcome of, of uh, malnutrition. And so you can see there's there's one from South Africa that showed a drop from 46 to 21%. So 21% is not good, right? One out of five children dying. That's not good, but it's better than one out of two children dying. So it was effective. And then there's one here from Malawi where they went from 55 to 15%. Quite a substantial drop in mortality. Still not where we'd like to be. We still don't want 15% of children dying. But that's the reality of working with malnourished children. They die. Um, Some of them die. You can't save them all. We'd like to get this down to 5% or less. And some places are able to do that, but many people are still struggling to get it below 10%. But anyway, we can see that when they they, before they put the 10 steps and after they put the 10 steps, you can see a change. Here are two studies from Colombia and Ethiopia that just, they're not before and after. They're just looking at now, Okay, when they did the study, and they came out fairly recently, that what's our, what's our rate now that we're, we all know the 10 steps, we all use the 10 steps, what's the mortality rate? And you can see that they're 5.7 and 7.1 are pretty good, whereas 10 years ago we were talking about 50% mortality. If you could get to 30%, we thought that was good. So getting down to 7 and 5.7 using this protocol I think is good proof that it's worth trying. So there's two phases to uh, treating malnutrition. There's a stabilization and a rehabilitation stage. And this is very important because when you see these children and they're so thin and apathetic and you just think they need food. And that's right. They do need food. Food is the cure. If you don't give them food, they don't get better. So food is the cure. But you have to take it slow. Okay? So the first phase is not about gaining weight. This stabilization phase, we don't expect one gram of weight gain. In fact, if they came in with edema, we expect weight loss. So don't be in a rush to see them gaining weight, especially in the first several days, even up to the first week. We're not really worried about them gaining weight. What we are worried about, especially, are these things here and a couple of these down here. So when these children come in and they're wasted, they're at high risk for hypothermia, as you can imagine, if you're in a place that's not warm. Okay, they've done some studies on the coast of the Indian Ocean, like in the coast of Kenya and Tanzania. And they've shown we don't have hypothermia. So if you're in a hot place, hypothermia may not be a big problem for you. But the rest of us, hypothermia and hypoglycemia are big deals that can make a child die in the first couple of days of treatment. So they have to be kept warm, they have to be kept dry, and they have to be fed. How do you fix hypothermia? If you feed the child then they, their metabolism kicks up and they start making their own heat and that's how they, you keep them from becoming hypothermic. So even though feeding doesn't show up till number seven and number eight, really we start feeding with number one and number two. Okay, But we start a special kind of feeding, a very slow, cautious feeding that we'll talk about here in a little bit. Hypoglycemia and hypothermia, those are easy to check for, easy to treat, and if you don't catch them and treat. Treat them. Your child can die before they ever get a chance to gain any weight. That's why they're number one and number two on the list. Hypoglycemia is so much so that if you don't even have a glucometer, the WHO recommends that you go ahead and treat with glucose because it's fairly frequent, it can be fatal, and it's easy to treat. And there's there's, uh, protocols for how to do that. Dehydration, which we'll talk about here, Dehydration is a little bit difficult to know what to do in children with malnutrition. This guy's doing a skin pinch, and you see how it goes back slowly. So is that child dehydrated, or is his skin turgor slow because he's malnourished? I don't know. Do you know? (laughs) There's no way to know. So diagnosing dehydration in a malnourished child is difficult. Because a lot of the signs of malnutrition are signs of dehydration, and you don't know which one is which. So typically, we treat based on the history. If there's a history of uh, diarrhea or vomiting or poor intake, then we're going to go ahead and treat for dehydration with a, special, a specially formulated um, oral solution. So we use a low-sodium oral solution. Remember when we were talking about the metabolic changes, we said they had a high total body sodium and a low potassium, low magnesium. So there is a special oral formula that has a low sodium and a higher potassium-magnesium uh, ratio to it. So we call it resomal. It is prepackaged. Uh, if you happen to be in a place where UNICEF or the WHO is helping and supplying supplies, and that's wonderful. Thankfully, where we are, we, most of the time we have supplies from UNICEF. And so we have packets of resomol, and uh, we can use that. I'll give you a formula for this, a recipe, okay? So if you don't have it, you can make it using regular ORS, low osmolarity ORS, and you can dilute it. This, this The second... Um, Uh, complication here with children, dehydration and malnutrition, is when, if ever, should we use IV fluids? So most of them, if there's a history consistent with dehydration, or you have another reason, maybe their capillary refill is severely delayed, you have another good reason for thinking they're dehydrated, you should give them oral, okay? Oral is best. And I tell my students, never, never, never give IV fluids to malnourished children. And they all want to say, but, 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 and I say, just wait. Okay, just remember, never give IV fluids to malnourished children. And if you take that away, then, then that's that's good. If you can remember the caveat, that's better. Okay, the caveat is for shock. So every child, whether he's well nourished or malnourished, if he's in shock, he needs fluids. So that's the caveat. But even that is different than the normal child with shock, the well-nourished child with shock. So the well-nourished child with shock gets 20 cc's per kilogram as fast as possible, less than 15 minutes. You just want to get that fluid in as much as you can, as fast as you can, he's in shock. Because of the concern for heart failure, for malnourished children, we want to give a little bit less and we want to give it over a longer period of time. Now this has been challenged recently. There's been some studies done in Kenya that showed maybe the way that we're giving fluids isn't helpful. (laughs) Whether you give them 20 cc's per kilogram over 15 minutes, 15 cc's per kilogram over an hour, there's still a high mortality. Maybe they need even more fluids than we were thinking. So we may see this recommendation change over the next few years as more research is done. But currently, the thought is to prevent heart failure, we give less fluid and we give it over a larger time period. Okay, here's the recipe. We won't go over it, but... For those of you who don't have UNICEF and rees you can make your own recipe. Here's the recipe for the mineral solution. You're supposed to add a mineral solution. We don't have mineral solutions. Where I am, we don't have potassium. We don't have magnesium. We don't have copper. I mean, you do the best you can. Okay, so this is ideal. Otherwise, you do the best that you can. And I'm sorry, you guys, but I can't. I'm tethered here. (laughs) I'm on a leash, so I can't move out of your way. Okay, electrolytes is another um, uh, risk of of death, especially early on in malnutrition. So trying to address these, we all know the medical complications. Those of you who are in medical school or have finished medical school or nursing school, there's lots of medical complications to electrolyte imbalance. So that's part of the problem, and that's why we should be replacing them. The other part is if you go back to that list of type 2 nutrients, you'll find potassium, magnesium, and sodium – are type two nutrients. So if we don't have them in the right quantities, the child will not grow and not respond as quickly. Additionally, some of the edema that we see in kwashiorkor is related to an imbalance of electrolytes. So really, if you're able to, again, I don't, where I am, I don't have these. I can't give them, I don't have them. But if you have them, you should give them. Okay, number, step number five is infection control. And you should think of infection control in five areas. It's step number five, and there's five areas. So, every malnourished child, at least this is the current thinking, every malnourished child gets antibiotics. They have a reduced immune system, and there's lots of reasons for that. They have a reduced immune response. They don't respond, they don't uh, use the medicines that we give them as well. And so, they should all get antibiotics. Now, whether they get oral, whether they get IV, whether they get um, third generation cephalosporin, ampingent, chloramphenicol, penicillin plus chloramphenicol, this is all up for debate. And we don't really know. There was a recent uh, analysis done, they tried to do a meta analysis on antibiotic use. And they found 18 studies that had studied antibiotics and malnourished children. And what they found out is we don't know. <laughs> so what we know is ampicillin and gentamicin, at the usual doses, is safe and effective. That's one study or two studies showed that. So you don't have to change the dose. Ceftriaxone is also safe and effective. And I think that when new recommendations come out, we'll see a greater uh, place for ceftriaxone or third-generation cephalosporins because they're becoming more widely available in Africa and other places, and there's, there's greater resistance to penicillin's And so I think we'll see recommendations for ceftriaxone and things like that coming out. Whether oral amoxicillin, cotrimoxazole, chloramphenicol, they all seem to be equally as effective. They all seem to be safe, except that chloramphenicol may have to be given in a lower dose. So that's the only one that's, most of us don't use chloramphenicol, I don't think. Very rarely do I have to use it. If the child is not very ill, then you're going to give oral antibiotics. And oral amoxicillin for five days is plenty. In fact, there's even a recent study for non-hospitalized malnourished children were given amoxicillin. And well, this was a retrospective study. So they looked at the children. They looked at the group that got amoxicillin and the group that got nothing. And at four weeks, the results were the same. I mean, at, at three months, 12 weeks, the results were the same. And actually, at four weeks, the ones who got antibiotics were worse off than the ones who didn't. But since it's a retrospective study, it's possible that the ones who got the antibiotics looked sicker, and that's why the doctor gave it, and that's why it took them longer to get better. So anyway, at 12 weeks, there was no difference. So we don't, we don't know exactly what to do. We don't know the best antibiotic, but they probably should all get antibiotics. If they're sick, IV, broad spectrum. If they're not sick, at least amoxicillin. Okay. Okay. Other than that, they should all get deworming. I mean, if you're in a place where they have worms, which if you're in the developing world, they probably have worms. Anti-parasite is considered optional. Where I am, we give it to everybody. Everybody gets flagel We really don't worry about it. And that's because most of them have diarrhea anyway. And we could have spent a whole lecture talking about diarrhea and malnutrition and that, how those work together. Okay? Does it cause diarrhea? Yes. Is it caused by diarrhea? Yes. So you'll often see diarrhea with your malnourished children. That's why they often get Resomal, that, that uh, rehydration solution. And that's why we typically give them Flagyl, okay?
1: Anti-malarial,
0: particularly if you're in an area that's high in malaria, we are not, so we do not. But if they have an unexplained fever, you should test for malaria and then decide whether or not you should treat. But you should be thinking about malaria, and if you're in an endemic area, you should just go ahead and treat for malaria, because those of you who work in those areas know you don't always get a positive smear. You're often treating empirically anyway, or you may get positive smears in kids that don't have malaria. So, just if you're in an endemic area, they have a fever, they're malnourished, just go ahead and treat for malaria. And then the fifth is vaccines, in particular, measles vaccine. I've had three children in the last year that were doing great. So, they were in, the, remember, I don't have outpatients, so my kids stay for a month or six weeks in the hospital. So they were in the hospital for three weeks. They were gaining weight. They were doing wonderful. They were playing. They were running around the ward. Then they got measles. Then they died. Now, if we had given them their measles injection on day three or four when they were out of their acute illness, they probably would have been immunized by three weeks. So the idea is they're going to be around sick children. They're immune-compromised. As soon as possible, get them vaccinated for measles if they're not. Malnutrition and measles is a bad combination. Okay, micronutrients, that's step number six, micronutrients. There are a lot of micronutrients that are missing, but the ones that have the best evidence for showing improvement in malnourished children are vitamin A and zinc. And so if you give nothing else, you should give vitamin A and zinc for sure. All children get vitamin A on day one. If they have signs of xerophthalmia, then they get get three days of treatment, you can see there. They all get zinc. Zinc is one of those type 2 nutrients. There's a lot of research on zinc, whether it's zinc for diarrhea or zinc for malnutrition, even now zinc for preventing pneumonia. So there's a lot going on with zinc, but all of your malnourished children should get zinc probably for two weeks. If you have a multivitamin with folic acid, that's a good idea. Uh, and iron, and there's always debate on when do you give iron because it's believed that iron can make infection worse, iron can reduce appetite so we don't typically give iron right away, we don't give iron when they come in not like the vitamin A and the zinc, they get those day one but the iron we typically give when their acute illnesses have resolved and their appetite is resolved, then we start giving them iron if there's signs of iron deficiency, which in my experience there always is Okay, now we're finally to the feeding. So after all of that, that's number seven and number eight is feeding. And they do that on purpose so that we don't rush to the feeding. Okay, but this cautious early feeding really begins with step one because to prevent hypoglycemia and to prevent hypothermia, you need to give feeding. Otherwise, you treat the hypoglycemia and an hour later it comes back. So you have to be feeding them in order to prevent that and the hypothermia. So you're going to start with a low-lactose, low-protein, low-osmolarity, low-calorie milk. Okay, We call this F75. So again, those of you who are fortunate enough to have UNICEF or somebody giving you supplies, you're probably familiar with F75. That's what the bag looks like. That picture was taken by Phil. That's your picture, Phil. Uh, And you give small, frequent feedings. And that's the key. They can't take a lot. They can't absorb a lot. Their stomachs have shrunk, so you're, they're going to start vomiting on you. You're going to give them diarrhea if you give them too much, especially because of the lactose and their malabsorption problems. So you want to give small, frequent feedings. And there's, a, there's protocols on exactly what small means and what frequent means. So we won't go into that, okay? But you can find all of that information. Small, frequent feedings. Remember, they're not try- we're not trying to get them to gain any weight here. I don't expect them to gain any weight with this milk. There's not enough calories here. I'm just trying to wake them up. I'm trying to get their, their intestines and their stomach used to having stuff in it. And I'm trying not to cause refeeding syndrome. So I'm going to go slow. There's no rush here. There is no rush. You're going to cover them with antibiotics. You're going to fix their electrolytes, their dehydration. You're going to keep them warm. And you're going to just give them just enough to wake them up. That's the purpose here. This is going to last anywhere from one day to ten days. Typically, they say three to seven days. I have some kids who come in and they take F75, and the next day, they look great. They're awake, they're looking at me, they're hungry, they're crying because they want more food. That child who's not sick has a good appetite. It's time to switch to now a grow milk, okay, A, a higher potency milk. I have some children that are sick for a whole week. And they're still lethargic. They won't eat on their own. They're still getting NG tube feedings. I'm not going to switch him. Even though the week is up, he's going to stay on the low milk okay, until he's, his appetite returns. Here's, a, again, a, a recipe for you, those of you who don't have people supplying your, you with milk. And we've had to do this because our supply runs out, and so we have to make our own special milk. So you take dried milk and you add sugar, vegetable oil, and water. Again, if you have Electrolyte mineral solution, wonderful. We don't have such a thing. Uh, so we just we use what we have. Okay, And you can see the differences here between F75, that's the starter feeder, the cautious refeeding, the early feeder, and F100, which is the really full of fat and protein and energy. And you can see everything goes up. Energy goes up, protein goes up, lactose goes up. Everything goes up in that milk because that's the one that makes them grow. So once the appetite returns, that's the hallmark. That's when you know it's time to switch. When the child's appetite returns, okay, assuming that they're not sick. You have a transition time. You don't just go from F75 to F100, big doses, and to try to get the kid out as fast as possible. You have a transition phase, and you can transition. Here's what F100 looks like, um, or if you have a child who's past milk. So for for infants, for for little babies, we just do F-75 milk and then we do F-100 milk. Okay? If the child doesn't drink milk anymore, if you have a five-year-old or a four-year-old, you're probably going to switch to a ready-to-use food. So this child here is holding nutty nutty butter. Okay? Which is somebody's takeoff of plumpy nut, which is the most popular one. Okay? But this is... I think these were... New People in New Jersey were making this one. Maybe it's cheaper. But this... This ready-to-use food, it's, it's made from milk and peanuts and oil and, okay, very similar to what the F-100 is made out of, except it's, it's a paste, it's an anhydrous material, so it lasts for months and months and months. It stores for a very long time, and you don't have to add anything to it, so it's safe to give when they leave the hospital. This is the same. F-100 and plumpy nut or nutty butter or whatever one you have are really the same. They're the same in nutrition, the same in calories, the same in protein. So whichever one you have, you can use. The goal, of course, is to get them to this because they can't go home with milk. Because what if they don't have clean water? And then they mix their milk with dirty water. What if they don't mix it properly? What if they use too much formula? What if they use too little formula? (coughs) So we're not handing out milk powder when they go home or when they go to their outpatient. Um, We're going to give them something like this. So you want to transition them to the ready-to-use therapeutic foods as quickly as possible. Okay, there's a recipe for you for plumpy nuts. This is kind of a basic recipe. If you go online, you can find lots of recipes based on rice, based on maize, based on oats, based on... Okay, this is kind of a really simple one. This is something I could do where I am. And uh, if you're in a place where you don't have a lot of resources, uh, that gets you pretty close. That's the mineral vitamin mix, in case you're interested, in case you have those things available. So we're on to number nine, sensory stimulation. Remember I told you a lot of these children have developmental delay or regression. So you have to start stimulating them to get them back to doing what they're supposed to do. And that should start as soon as the child is able to do that. So you see the the arrow starts on day one. A lot of them aren't ready on day one. But as soon as they're awake and they're interacting... There are toys you can make. There are games you can play. You can read to them. You can have them do puzzles. You can have them play with dolls. You want to take them outside for periods of time. Let them start walking and running and taking things in. You want to do that as soon as you can. And then prepare for follow-up. Discharge criteria vary depending on if you're looking at research that has been done and they have their own criteria or you look at what the WHO says or you look at what somebody else says. They may vary. But these are some good general guidelines for when is your child ready to be discharged from the program. Whatever your program is, whether that's all inpatient like me because you don't have anybody outpatient to help, or whether it's all outpatient or whether it's some kind of combination. So when they have good weight gain, 15 to 20 percent, when their Z scores are going back to normal, remember above negative 2 is considered normal, small but normal. Okay, negative Negative 1 would be even better but typically you can't get the moms to stay that long. Uh, No sooner than two weeks if they come in with edema. You want to wait at least two weeks once the edema resolves before you let them leave the program. I will say kwashiorkor is harder to treat. And those of you who who do this, you know that. Most of the kids I have that die are kwashiorkor. Very few of them are marasmus. The marasmus respond quicker. Remember, they're well adapted. So when you give them what they need, they gain weight and they do well. The kwashiorka children are maladapted, and so when, when you treat them, they don't respond as quickly, they get sicker, and sometimes they die. And, of course, their acute illness should be resolved. Okay, I wanted to share one brief story from where I am. This is Safa. Safa came in at two months. She was two kilograms. She's a twin, and she was the small twin. So the big twin got breastfed by mom, and the small twin was given to her grandmother, and she started and she was fed with goat's milk. So she started vomiting as soon as she started getting the goat's milk at 2 weeks of age. They brought her in at 2 months. Why they wait that long? I don't I never understand how we ever get a child like this. Why wouldn't you bring him in before he gets like this? Anyway, so she came in and she looked like a skeleton with skin. I mean, she wasn't responding, she wasn't looking at anybody, and all of my students figured she's dead because they'd seen her before, not her, but other babies like her, and they always die. And so we had just started using the 10 steps. I was new. I didn't, I didn't know any other way. That's all I knew to do. And so we said, well, let's just do it. Let's see if it works. Let's do what we're supposed to do and see if she gets better. Now, it took two months, <laughs> but this is Safa when she left the hospital, the same weight as her, as her twin who was breastfed. So the mother finally started coming around about a week before discharge, when they knew she was going to survive and she was gaining weight well. It took us a long time to get her to gain weight. In fact, we had to give her double the recommended calories before she started gaining weight. And I think it's because she she was so young. All the recommendations we have for feeding are for six months and older, and she was two months, three months, so we had to give her more than usual. Okay, there's lots of uh, resources you guys can check out later, but I know we're already late, so if you need to leave... Feel free to leave. If you have questions, um, that's fine too. I'm here.